Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is the story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. Jesus. We wrote it on the wall at both campuses if you need some help with that. And we're so glad if you're joining us at the Lompoc campus. We are so glad that you're joining us this morning. We are one church in a couple locations and we are so glad. Maybe you didn't realize that right now there's a group of people gathered together at 213 North J Street in Lompoc. They're gathered together. Pastor Tyler's there. Becca's there. And they are leading a gathering of people that are Crossroads Church. And we want to invite you to this midweek gathering we've been talking about. We're going to gather together both campuses all in one location, and it's going to be an incredible time together. Amen? Amen. Well, hey, if you need a Bible, uh, if you forgot yours, uh, we got one for you. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. I think there's somebody back there ready for that. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you take that and read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can do a little better than that, right? Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. I mean, that's the primary purpose of the Bible. And so uh, I want you to turn in your Bible to uh, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This is a series that we uh, started in the fall. We took a break in the Christmas season, and now we're jumping back into this series because that's our healthy diet here at Crossroads Church. We preach through books of the Bible. And the reason why is we want you to have an all-encompassing view of the scriptures. We want you to get the overview. We want you to understand how the stories and the parts fit together. We want to help you navigate this 66 book library that we call the Bible. Amen. And so this is the healthy diet. I don't want just whatever is in pop culture or some, uh, you know, thing we need to address. And oftentimes those scriptures where you realize it or not, will address those when we don't even plan for it to address. But all scripture is God breathed and put here for us. It's profitable for us for encouragement, exhortation, and, and to rebuke us, to challenge us, but ultimately to build us up as we speak the truth in love, it is to equip us that we would have what it takes to supply one another with what we need, building together as the church. The church is not a building, amen? The church is a group of people gathered together under the banner of Jesus. And so look at Genesis 12. I'm going to read some of what I read last week as we dive through this book. The first book of the Bible kind of sets the precedent for uh, the rest of the book because we believe the Bible is one continuous story from beginning to end all about Jesus. And so we want to even look at the Old Testament and see how those passages ultimately point to Jesus. Amen. And, uh, and I got my amen corner over here. And, and so I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse one. 
Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want to point out two things. He starts out saying that you will be a great nation, but he ends with saying all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's going to be key for us today. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, great name for a wife, and and Lot, his brother, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Great name for a son. Uh, and when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of she- at Shechem, at the Oak of Moor. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord um, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards uh, Negem. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And he was about to enter Egypt. And he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. I believe that too, Sarah. And, uh, and, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. This is where I'm not going to follow in Abram's steps that he make that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is it that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that this was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you help us learn from this book that you've left before us. We thank you for these stories that have been going viral for thousands of years. I pray that you would help us see you in every single text. I pray that you help us today. Let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Amen. 
I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this or not, and, and maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe you're new uh, to the scriptures, or maybe your idea of religious books or religious text is it is a story about heroes. Maybe you think that religious texts like the Bible are a story of men of valor and women of virtue. And, and maybe you think when I open the Bible, it's this daunting task of I want to follow Jesus, but I got to be like the people of old. Well, I, I got good news for you, friend. And this is going to be profoundly theological. You're probably going to want to tweet it later or something like that, right? The reality is of the Bible is the Bible is a story about everyone else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. Good news. We can go home now, right? If you just started the scriptures when you read them and you started with that understanding, when I open this book, this person is like me. I find myself wanting to do good. Oftentimes that's not what I do. Amen. I mean, you feel like your life sometimes is trapped in a Britney Spears song. Oops, I did it again, right? <laughs> like some of us just have that. And the Bible tells us in Romans, it, it, it describes for us, gives us like a 30,000 foot view of things. It gives us an overview and basically tells us that's what we'll experience. Because of sin, what we find is we have a bent towards it and we can't seem to get away from it. And it's, it's as if there's a software issue. There's something wrong inside. There's a glitch that constantly pulls me away from the thing that I want to do, the thing that I hate. That's what I do. Where Paul will say this, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul says this in Romans after he talks about the Old Testament, after he talks about Abram, after he talks about Abraham, after he talks about the people of old. He says, this has always been the problem. But Praise be to God, for God has given us a way to be right with him. And it's apart from us trying to do it on our own because we couldn't do it ourselves. He says, praise be to God, for the spirit of the life of Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. What he compares to is what we find ourselves with the law of nature gravity we we know what goes up must comes come down an object in motion has a tendency to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force an object at rest has a tendency to stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force these are laws we know this intrinsically to be true paul says the law of sin is like those laws that you find it to be true, objectively true. It just seems like in every regard, and that's no different for you than it was for Abram. Like the problem is, is that we sometimes read the Old Testament without the lens of the cross. And see, we stand 2,000 years removed from the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are to look through the lens of the cross in order to see what the covenant was that God was actually making. See, we find Abram here in Genesis and God makes a promise to him. God speaks to him abruptly after dealing with all of humanity. See, sometimes I think what happens is when we read the Bible, we go, man, that's not fair to take Adam's sin and begin to uh, curse everyone. 
to bring a curse on everyone because of one man's sin or everyone should be punished. But what Adam does for us is shows us what all men and women will do. And the opening parts of Genesis tells us that. It puts before us the reality, friend, that men are corrupted and corruptible. That all men and women move away from what's right and move to what's wrong. That's why putting your faith in men is so dangerous, friends. Someone say amen to that. Because the reality is, is they will fail us just like you have failed. Let me say it again. It is dangerous to put your trust in men, men who are politicians, men who are leaders, men who seem that they are great orators, men who are seemingly religious, seemingly holy people. Listen, friends, if I am the best Christian in this room, we're all in trouble. For all the guests, you're welcome. Right. So what? I thought you were the guy, right? Uh, no, 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 I'm pointing to the guy, right? See, the reality is all of us, the Bible says, have fallen short of the glory, the standard of God, that we don't hold that standard well. We have ideas of standards. We have standards for ourselves. We have standards for other people, but we don't quite keep them. And then even think about that in regards to every other thing in reality, right? Uh, and, uh, because we kind of pride ourselves as a culture as we're a scientific culture. We, we follow the science. What, what does that even mean? Because here's the reality when it comes to human beings, science cannot tell me what I ought to be. Science does not tell anything what it ought to be. It tells it what it is. The scientific method helps me discover what is. And I think science is a beautiful thing. And actually, the explosion of science is because there were some people who believed the scriptures. They actually believed that there was law in nature because there was a legislator. And so if they scientifically observed and studied with the intellect that God had given them, with an intelligent mind, because they were created by an intelligent designer, that they could actually find and discover laws in nature. That's the explosion of science. It came from a Judeo-Christian worldview, not any other worldview. So when popular culture tells you that science and religion are juxtaposed to one another, it is completely not true. That's good news, amen? But here's the reality, is science can only tell me what is. It cannot tell me what ought to be. And so when you describe a, a tree, when you describe a rock scientifically, you say, that's rock. Right? Science isn't my department, right? Or you could imagine all the lingo that would go into this part of the sermon, right? And so scientifically, you would describe a tree that's a tree, right? You don't decide what it is. In other words, you don't insert into it morality. You don't insert into it what it ought to be. The only time that what ought to be is implied into things in nature is when you want to use it for your 
purpose. When purpose is instituted, you say, man, that's a, that's a bad tree. That's what I'm told all the time about these pepper trees around. That's a bad tree. I'm like, it's a tree, right? Like, why are you so mad at this tree? And you're like, that's a bad rock. It's like, it's a rock, you know? It's like, well, those rocks out there, kids throw them at people, right? Like, and it's like, well, wait a second. The rock, it's not the rock's problem. It's all these children, right? And, uh, and yet... And yet, when we think scientifically about something, we, we're not describing what ought to be, we're describing what actually is, not when it comes to human beings, not when it comes to men and women created in the image of God. We all imply, insert purpose, morality, and what ought to be and what should not be. We think about it. We, we think about what a good friend should be, how, how, what a good husband is, what, what a good wife is, what they ought to be. And we quickly insert to us the judgment See, They ought not do that. How often do we think that? How often do you get caught up scrolling the bottomless pit that is the interwebs? You're like, this should not be, right? And yet, when we think about human beings, there is this way, this direction, this ought to us, this motivation that we know should be true. And yet we find ourselves moving away what ought to be and moving where we ought not be. This is true universally like a law for everyone. And Abram in the Old Testament is not removed from that. Even though God decides, he goes, okay, I've dealt with all of humanity. I've showed you that all humanity will go astray. And you're like, well, yeah, but, but if you picked me out of the bunch, I would be different than everyone else. And so God says, okay, I'll take you up on that. And he chooses Abram. And and not only is it like, I'm going to choose you and then not give you the tools and resources. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to speak to you personally. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a covenant. And this covenant is that I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. And anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Now, we don't read that outside of the New Testament. We need to read that through the lens of the cross. And here's what we know. This is what we began to talk about last week, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. It goes from covenant to the cross. He says, anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. Well, Romans tells me that all have dishonored God that all have dishonored his chosen one. What we see in the time of Jesus is no one picks Jesus, that everyone, even his closest friends, betray him and flee in fear of their life. And, and then the multitude, the crowds cheer. They actually have before them a prisoner who they can choose to allow to go free, Barabbas, and then Jesus. Even Pilate's nervous about this. Or a government official says, I can't find fault with someone. Man, this is a fantastic statement. Not a democracy, not a, not a, a nation by laws, not due process. This is, this is a corrupt government who actually gathers people together and for entertainment has them 
killed. And this man, Pilate, the governor, who's responsible for this region of the, the, the earth, this region of Galilee, Jerusalem, for the Roman Empire, and he says about this man who's brought before him, Jesus, I can find no fault with him. And he says, listen, there's this custom. Here's Barabbas. He's a murderer. Which one would you like to take? And the crowd begins to cheer, riled up by his accusers, riled up by these religious leaders. And they begin to chant, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And that's exactly what they do. They choose Barabbas. They dishonor Jesus. They dishonor Jesus and they allow Barabbas to go free. But this promise, this covenant, tells us that anyone who dishonors the chosen one, anyone who, who dishonors the one who will be blessed, right? Anyone who dishonors this offspring of Abraham, this family that will come, I will curse them. Well, what that means is we're all under a curse. That means that we've all gone astray. We've not done what we ought to do. We've dishonored God. Not only have we dishonored God, but we as humanity have dishonored God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And what are we to do about this? Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. That we were cursed, but Galatians tells us that he became a curse and stood in our place. For the Bible says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. When I look at the covenant, I go, God, there, there's this covenant of doing what's right, blessings and cursings. But the story begins to show me that ultimately none of us keep the covenant. None of us keep what we perceive as a contract. And a, and a covenant is far beyond a contract. And yet all of us, based on this first covenant in Genesis, and then what we see Abraham do, we're in trouble. But the New Testament gives me hope. He says, listen, praise be to God. For the law of sin and death that once ruled everything, I'm no longer bound by it, but I'm set free because of what? The life of Jesus Christ. This is where you say, amen. Right? For, for the life of Jesus, his life in exchange for us, he takes on the curse and fulfills the covenant that we could not keep. Why? Because the Bible is a story about everyone else getting it wrong. One person coming and at the cross paying our debt because we've dishonored God, because we've moved astray, because we couldn't hold the covenant. God says, I'll become a man, Philippians tells us, that, that God, Jesus did not hold on to equality with God, but humbled himself, limited himself, poured himself into a man. This is why Jesus' favorite term for himself is the son of man. What it truly means to be a man. What it truly means to be human. That's what Jesus shows for us. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, he fulfills this covenant that is made to Abraham that will continue on to David and to the nation of Israel, his chosen people. What is he showing us here? 
What is the point of seeing and being reminded that none of us, because that's good news for us, if ultimately those heroes of the faith who were blessed, who were, who were told that I'll give you a great land, I'll make you a great nation, and they still don't choose God, then what does that do for us? Well, it shows us that ultimately this story is about Jesus and it's not about you. That's good news, right? Because, right, the pressure of that, you go, man, God, I can't live up to, I don't wanna be, I, I don't think I can, I can fully follow through. And he goes, no, 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 I'm gonna do it for you in your place. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm going to exchange your life for mine. And not only this, Jesus says, I'm gonna give you my spirit because there's been this software issue. I'm, I'm gonna actually give you a software update. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a new life. You're gonna be born again. Right inside of this old you, there's gonna be this new you. Have you ever noticed, anyone who's been following Jesus for a long time, have you ever, have you ever noticed that there are two yous that live in you? And some of you need to have a conversation with you, all right? <laughs> Knock it off, right? And there's this war between the new you and the old you, but here is the difference from the cross and the resurrection in this new life is that bent, that always and often, that thing that I can't get out of, now there, there's actually a new life where he says, you know what you should be? You should be crucified with Christ so it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you and through you. And so now you're not trapped to always be in a bad pop song. You, you remember the joke from earlier? Okay. Thanks, LP. And, uh, and yet, you don't have to be trapped in doing the thing you don't want to do. Now you are free to live the life that God has called you to live. That's the difference. That's this new life. That's the covenant in light of the cross. And that's why Jesus, and what Pastor Rick was reminding us of through communion, that's why Jesus says, this is the blood of my new covenant. And it's written with my life. That's why I take the bread. That's why I take the cup. I am reminded that it is the life of Jesus in me and through me. It's in him we live and move and have our being. For Jesus says, whom the son has set free is free indeed. It is for freedom that you've been set free. You can now live the life God has called you to live. Praise God, amen. You're going to like the next line when I say, now you have no excuse. <laughs> because ultimately it goes from the, the covenant of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, to the commission of Jesus' church, his body. Think about like how the New Testament reminds us that it is him in us and through us that he'll give us communion to remind us that it's him in us. Then he'll say, you'll be a part of my body, the church. You'll be a part of something, but it's still him living and moving and causing us to have our being. So I started thinking about what are some things that is the antithesis? What, what's, 
What's the solution to this passage that we read in Genesis? What happens here that Jesus actually reverse? Because he reverses the curse. Here's what we see in Genesis. We see Abraham receiving a covenant from God, a blessing from God, a promise from God. And in a moment when things are good, he trusts God. You ever been there? He says, oh, I'll make you a great nation. He's like, I like that, right? I'm gonna give you lots of children. I like that, right? I'm, 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 I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna make you a great name. I like that. You see this land right here with all these giants and all these people are dying? This is gonna be your land. You're like, I like that. Imagine just driving in the nicest neighborhood around here. God's like, that's gonna be your house. You're like, I like that. Right, it's all good. I'm going to trust God. He's going to bless me. He's going to keep me. Then all of a sudden, he tests our faith. And the testing is not in order for him to figure out where you're at. I'm going to let that sizzle for a moment. The testing is not for him to figure out where you are at. It's for him to reveal to you just where you are. It says a great famine comes over the land and they have to flee to Egypt. And what does he see? He sees a great nation. He sees a group of people with a great name, Pharaoh, Egypt. All the things that he was just promised, he actually stands in the face of. And now he's caused to see what's right in front of them rather than seeing what God's put in his vision, in his hope, in his purpose, what God has placed before him. He sees what's in the natural, but he no longer can see what's in the supernatural. He could see it before. See, this is where faith, I think so many times has been taught in such a way that kind of messes us up on what we, what we consider faith, this thing that is so important to us. We'll say things like, you just gotta have, right, we, 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 we say that and it's like, well, what does that even mean? How do you gain faith? And because of that, we now think, and, and some of you have heard me describe this, so now we think faith is like, like a Chuck E. Cheese game. You ever been there? It's hell on earth. <laughs> Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Chuck E. Cheese, right? Like, like, like I think faith gets taught subtly like this, is if you do all the religious games, then you'll, you'll if you down that clown, you know, man, I've spent like a fortune trying to, trying down that ski ball. Some of you just go over there and play the slots. It's conditioning, friends. I don't know. What are you thinking about? But, but yet, all I think is, man, if I could play the game and I could gain enough tickets, I could cash it in. If I had enough faith. You know how I know this? is because when I pray for something or I believe God for something and it doesn't happen, the first thing people say is maybe, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe, maybe I didn't have enough. Maybe, maybe I didn't do enough. And what we'll find is when we find ourselves in crisis, this is the moment where we start doing the most. We start relying on us again. 
We start scheming. We start saying, that's not my wife. Can you imagine? Dude's so scared. Starts scheming. He's going, man, I don't have enough faith to go, God, you're going to make me a great nation? Pharaoh, Egypt. You can have her. (laughs) Right? And this is our guy? Like, come on, men. Like, this is frustrating. You're like, we're going to, no, no, kill me now. Right? Like, like I'm not, I'm not going. Yeah, Abram is so afraid because here's the thing. Fear will begin. Fear will come in, squander your faith, will suppress it. See, fear mostly, when you think about the nature of fear, fear is what you're mainly afraid of is imaginations. You know that? You're sitting on a surfboard and no one around. Every shadow is a shark. All of a sudden, there's like, like no music, but you just hear, da-da. <laughs> like, who's playing that, right? Da-da. It's like, imag- imaginations grow. See, the enemy uses imaginations. See, imaginations are, can be the very thing that blocks out our vision of what God has for us. He, he, we're believing God and we're trusting God, but it's the enemy uses shadow games and he makes himself bigger than he can. He tries to make himself bigger than God. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. See, sometimes I can be in the face of something and because of my fear, all of a sudden, I'm scheming. All, all of a sudden, man, I, I don't know. I'll try to do it on my own rather than trusting. This was a crisis of faith for Abram. Lies and says, no, 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 this isn't my wife. He's not willing to give himself for her. How does Jesus reverse this curse? How does he change this? It's actually the picture that Ephesians gives us. And we're going to begin to talk about what these mean, some of the, the bad words of the Bible. You didn't know there were bad words in here, but if you ever say the word submit to a woman. <laughs> bad word. Ephesians says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's going to be difficult to hear for a moment. And here's what I encourage you, ladies. You want to dive into this? You actually want to study the Bible? Don't avoid tough passages of the Bible. Let's try that again. You see how drawn out that was? Amen. (laughs) We're going to deal with this at the women's gathering and tell you it's going to be life-giving for you. Because some of the most difficult passages at first glance 
we realize God's writing a beautiful story. And I want to encourage you in this. But here's what he says. Wives, submit to your own husband as you do the Lord. Wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. But husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know what Abram was not willing to do? Give himself up for his wife. And the reverse of the curse is that Jesus comes. You go, well, Jesus wasn't married. That's right. He is married to the church. And he gives himself up. What happens? It costs him his life. Why? Because of the beauty of the church. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and gave himself up for us. See, every story is about Jesus. Every story reveals to us what Jesus is showing us, that Christ is the answer. Christ is our model. Christ has commissioned us to look like, sound like, and be like him. You want a hero? You want a model? Jesus. What does it, what does that mean? What it means for us is that we're commissioned See, the end of Matthew says it this way. Matthew 27. Says, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. This is Matthew 18. And G- Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to me, so go therefore. Meaning no longer you have to worry about the powers and imaginations and principalities. All authority has been given to me, go therefore. What does that mean? It will work. You can trust it. You can believe it even if in your face, even when you see empires like Egypt, don't start scheming on your own, trying to come up with your own plan. Do what he's commissioned you to do. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Now, this is what we begin to start the conversation last week, continue on this week. The way this is going next week. Remember I told you to remember when he said to Abram, I'll make you a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice this. Nations don't become nations without families. And families don't happen unless a man meets a woman. How you doing? My wife's sitting over there. All right. So we're like, who's he looking at? Sarah, the beautiful one. Stay away, Pharaoh. So a man meets a woman. 
man pursues a wife, then values her, then cares for her, gives his life for her. And what she submits to is the humble, life-giving service that he places before her. She goes, yeah, I may be driving, but where do you want to go? I'm going to take you there. I'm not going to hand you to someone else. I'm not going to hand you to the ideologies of this world. I'm not going to hand you off to every book you read and every doctrine. I'm not going to hand our family off to be raised by other nations. I'm going to again to man and woman. This is how marriage works. A man and a woman come together. They have children. If this is new to anybody, uh, <laughs> they have children. And then their children alongside with other friends in covenant and community at the midweek, they meet people at the single mingle. And men who are endeavoring to follow Jesus and women who are submitting to the rule of Christ and waiting for a man actually to be worthy of her submission. Then all of a sudden there's more, more, more children. Then we be bigger nurseries. You need more childcare. You need more daycare. You need more moms giving themselves to the work of raising children. And all of a sudden you realize there's this network of people who follow Jesus, King Jesus, and all of a sudden husbands and wives and families and kids all of a sudden build great nations. So the inverse is true. You don't lead your family. You don't give yourself for your wife. You won't submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Your children see chaos. They know nothing about the things of God. And all of a sudden, they build nations that are in chaos. So what happens is, is I have to realize that God is in control. God is working. And how could Abram not see? He says, listen, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna make you a great nation and your offspring will be great. And he didn't think Sarah was important to the gig. Like, here's what this says is not, not only does God protect the promise, but the avenues in which he intends to produce the promise. That means God is sovereign over the ends and the means. You, your job is to see him for who he is. See, faith isn't about how much you have. It's about who do you see? Do you see him as faithful? Do you see him in the mundane? Do you see him in the day-to-day -day grind of obedience in serving your family, raising your children, teaching them, bringing them to church, making sacrifices? Man, we're two in shambles over here. God's not been a priority. Then friend, if you allow that to be their story when they're young, you cannot criticize them when they are old. Set the foundation now and trust God, not handing them off to other nations to raise to care for, but giving yourself up.
every single day and trusting God that with your simple act of obedience, he'll change nations for the glory of God and the good of those around him. See, the commission is to disciple the nations. But what that means is you start with your family. This has to be a priority. Your commission. Sometimes we can go, oh, God, a great nation? See, this is exactly what Abram did. He said, God, you're going to make me a great nation. And he started dreaming for the stars and neglected his wife. Man, oh, the story of businessmen, of pastors, of faithful people. God's going to make me great and neglect their family. That's the American dream. The lesson here is Christ does not do that, but he lives a selfless, obedient life, obedient unto death, death on a cross. Because of that, Jesus has this great name and he's building a great big family. You go, well, I don't have a family right now. Oh, you got a family? It's called the church of Jesus Christ. You go, I'm single, yes. And keep being faithful and trust God. Put yourself in position where you're submissive to God, loving God. Men, pursue a wife. You're a single man? Think about what God's called you to do and be prepared and ready to lay down your life for her. What if everybody just did that? Would that be great? Some of us need to go home and repent. Change the way we think, do something different. Some of us need to stop criticizing the nation until we get our house in order. Jordan Peterson in his 12 Rules for Life says, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Let it be true of Crossroads Church let it be true of us that together we build a tribe and a family faithful to the person of Jesus. We start here, not pointing the fingers out there for his glory and our good. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace that you would help us in all things. You made a covenant with man and man couldn't keep it. So you became a man and you kept both ends of the bargain. And now you've given your life to us. We're not bound. We don't have the same old, old excuse. We have a new life, a software update. The curse of sin is broken and your love has spoken life to me. And now we're free to live the life you've called. We're, we're free to serve our families, to build communities. Let them see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. Maybe you're here today. You say, I, I don't have this new life. 
I don't know what it means. What it means, friend, is taking one step towards the person of Jesus. The Bible says no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. We don't know. It's like the wind. He blows. We don't know where he comes from, but he's here with us. And that step forward is evidence that you've been given new life. That step forward. And then you do the next step, the next right thing, the next way forward. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. Jesus, I thank you for every person, what you're doing in their lives. We're not here counting converts and counting hands. We're here discipling the nations by discipling families. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?